Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FD Advisor podcast. This edition becomes the outlook for European equities. I'm David Thorpe, Special Project Editor at FD Advisor. The pandemic is likely to shake up the way many economies and businesses perform for many years to come. And the dreaded Brexit word continues to perforate public consciousness despite many attempts to make it go away. Though we will do our best today to make this podcast if not a Brexit-free zone, at least minimal Brexit. The podcast today is sponsored by Schroders. Joining me today to discuss the outlook for European equities beyond the pandemic are Martin Scanberg, European Equity Fund Manager at Schroders, James Dowie, Global Equity Fund Manager at Lion Trust, and Michelle Pereira, Chief Investment Officer at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, David. Pleasure. Martin, if we start with you, uh, to what extent uh, will political considerations and e- ECB meetings, um, election cycles, always overshadow the fundamentals in European equity markets, in, in your view? Yes, well, I mean, clearly there's no uh, getting away from uh, politics always uh, having an influence on, on the equity and on, on the fixed income markets for sure. And I think that would be true for any region, I would have to say. But certainly Europe has its own considerations. Uh, 27 EU member states and the ECB is uh, clearly a, a fairly complex um, uh, equations that need to be squared. And no doubt over the last couple of years, uh, the Eurozone project and the integration of that has perhaps been really the, the foremost uh, worry, I guess, with, with uh, international uh, investors. I think this time around, though, maybe the EU has actually landed on a slightly more proactive footing uh, when you look at the recovery packages and uh, the forward guidance and also the um, uh, asset purchase programs that are, are very assertive. Uh, but there's no doubt that uh, when you uh, you look at the B2B boon spreads, uh, this continues to be a key consideration that has implications for uh, sovereign debt, that has implications for the banking sector, that has clearly uh, deep considerations for the credit cycle as well. Thank you. Uh, Michelle, in your in your role as a, an asset allocator at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, how do you how do you think about Europe in the in the macro sense and is there always uh, are you always just uh, one um, one interesting election result, shall we say, away from uh, changing your allocations? Well, we've actually looked at uh, the uh, European market over the last 15 years, comparing it to the US and the UK market, but not the whole market, sector by sector, because you have to compare the market sector by sector, because the sector breakdown is completely different in the US compared to Europe. And the discount that European equities have sector by sector to the US has increased in two situations in during the 2011 Eurozone crisis and the 2016 Brexit referendum, and it didn't come back. Um, and it's the same for financials, consumer durables, tech, utilities, communications, and industrials. It's only consumer non-durables, which include luxury and healthcare, which have been uh, immune from that discount. 
and so there's been a little bit of an improvement since the announcement of coronavirus bonds, um, and therefore there is a way out of this, and therefore, you know, the political risk, if I may say so, in Europe is pretty much in the price. Uh, even the hard Brexit risk is in the price, because if you look at sterling versus the euro, it's close to a post-referendum low, and therefore a lot of it is in the markets as well. The one thing that may not be in the market is not related to Europe, but related to the US and China. It's the conflict between the two countries, which may force European companies to take sides. And they may suffer as a result of that. And don't forget Trump's tariffs if he gets re-elected. Thank you. Uh, James, I know you, you, wear, uh, you wear two hats, at least two hats. First, one as the Global Equity Fund Manager, but also you have a, um, you, you have a role there looking at, at the macro economy and, and, and quite a deal of, of background in that, in that area. Um, combining those two things as best you can, how do, how do you... Yeah, well, you know, taking a global perspective, as you say, the one thing that strikes me the most is that the politics is getting worse around the whole world and political cooperation between countries is getting harder. If anything, I think Europe recently has outperformed expectations politically and matched or even bettered its peers, such as the US. Now, that's true if you look at the macro and health policy response to COVID. And it's true if you look at the EU Green Deal, which is a major political achievement. So Europe could now be a bit underrated politically, I think, actually. Um, all of that said, however, you've got the euro. And the euro is quite special, unfortunately, or fortunately in a way, because it's a rare political fault line that has the potential to truly shape the financial system. There are obviously other fault lines out there, but the euro is an important one financially, and it's in Europe. Does it overshadow the bottom-up fundamentals? No, but it's there in the background. Okay. Uh, James, thank you for that. One of the uh, areas in which the Eurozone is, is perhaps um, already ahead of the UK is having uh, deployed negative interest rates. Um, if an investor is looking at the past years of negative interest rates, um, with the possibility that they be introduced in the UK, uh, what lessons can we can we take from that? What do negative interest rates mean for, for markets? Mm, yeah, it's a great question. My reading of the evidence on negative interest rate policies in Europe and indeed in Japan over the past few years is that they've very likely done more harm than good. The positive impact on stimulating demand looks minimal to non-existent, basically, while their impact on the banks and the credit supply look to have been really quite negative. But more importantly than that, and I think that this is a very underappreciated point, simply the peculiar and concerning sight of negative interest rates has, I believe, exacerbated pessimistic public expectations about future economic growth. Keynes observed nearly a century ago that the possibilities for economic progress depend very much on what we believe is possible. And I do hope that the Bank of England is considering this lesson when it's thinking about applying negative interest rate policies today in the UK. Thank you. Um, Michelle, one of the sort of logical or maths-based ways to think about negative interest rates is that it lowers the discount rate. 
and lower discount rates should be good for many asset prices, in, including equities. Um, European equities haven't been exactly star performers uh, during the period of, of negative rates. Is, is that simply a function of, of the limits of the policy? And could it be different in the UK? Could negative interest rates send the FTSE soaring? Um, I, I totally agree with what James was saying before. I mean, you know, it hasn't it has actually done more harm than good. Uh, the experience has not been uh, uh, a success for to create economic growth. It may have created asset growth, but um, it the UK is thinking of adding this to its arsenal, but without much enthusiasm. Uh, it's doing, it's blowing hot and cold on negative rates, knowing that it may have to have them as an ammunition in the case of a hard Brexit. Uh, but I would say at this stage that the difference between a hard Brexit and a deal is very shallow. There will be very few sectors likely to be involved in the agreement, and the follow-up will take at least five years or more to create any sectoral deals. Most of that's already in the market. Um, there could be a disruption to the UK economy if it's poorly prepared, which is why the Bank of England may have to intervene. So I'm saying they might be forced to do it rather than want to do it because they've seen the experience not being that positive. Thank you. Uh, Martin, as a European equity investor during the, the period under, under discussion, um, how does negative interest rates impacted your portfolio, if at all, or how do they impact your thinking as an investor? Yeah, I can only uh, really agree. Um, I think uh, negative interest rates uh, serves more of a, a very poor lesson. And uh, look, we've we've got many years of uh, eurozone negative interest rates, and it was also uh, really started off uh, in Sweden and Switzerland as well. Um, you know. I think it's a really bad idea. It's it's gonna it's gonna lead a sell-off uh, in the UK banks, and and this really matters for those banks that have a low return on on equity. So, you know, this will impact profitability. Uh, we've seen that lesson learned uh, very very clearly, um, and that means that the dividends get impaired, and if the economy gets worse and banks need to raise capital via rights issues, the scale of capital needed uh, would dwarf the market caps and. Uh, this is um, uh, often forgotten that uh, you don't get anything for free. So one, one has to ask yourself, you know, why has the ECB been so keen on, on, on pushing interest rates negative? And in some ways, maybe they've been, been forced into it, uh, needing to keep real interest rates negative as inflation expectations have come down. So they've been forced into it. But they often point out to, um, you know, lowering credit losses uh, in the system. Uh, as being the key uh, benefit. Uh, but in reality, I think it actually just impairs uh, banking profitability and you get this negative uh, feedback loop. So, um, you know, the OIS is uh, already indicating that uh, I think we're heading into negative interest rate territory. So maybe there's not that much news to be, be had in, in the actual delivery of that. Uh, but I think uh, keeping rates at zero is likely positive would serve an equally good purpose. Thank you. And Martin, given the macro discussion that we've had and macro debate that's, that's going on in the world, um, 
how are valuations uh, right now in, in in the eurozone? I mean, it's it's a very strange equity market because in in the US the markets hit record highs powered by a small number of stocks. In other parts of the world, very deep um, uh, re recessions and prolonged periods of economic stagnation are, are priced. Where's Europe on that in that massive delta? I think when we look at European valuations, um, earnings have been cut uh, some 35% uh, for, for the current year. Uh, and this is set to uh, you know, very rapidly recover. I think the market is penciling in a 40% increase. So when you look at the 12-month uh, uh, forward PE, European equities is trading on 18 times forward earnings. And this looks quite rich when you look at their historical levels of around 13 times. So, yeah, it's some, some 40% uh, premium to its history. But obviously, um, I think we need to look forward uh, to the recovery. And, uh, you know, there is some 40, 50% earnings growth that's penciled in. So by the time you look at 2022, you're looking at, at some normalized multiples around uh, 14 times. Uh, you know, how does that compare Europe versus the U.S.? Well, if Europe is on 18 times, uh, you've got the FTSE on 15 and the S&P is on uh, nearly 23 times forward earnings. So there's a huge relative valuation call to be had. And that's also very, very evident when you look at the equity risk premium, the, the differential between the dividend yield you get on the market and the sovereign yield, that equity risk premium or spread is some three and a half percent in Europe. And that to me looks, uh, looks to be uh, very, very attractive and should serve the basis for a good carry trade. Thank you. As an, as an asset allocator, um, a feature of the, the past decade really has been um, uh, selling or underweighting U.S. equities and valuation grounds hasn't really worked. That, that market's basically just gone up for a decade, whereas other cheaper-looking markets haven't really gone up over the past decade. Um, how do you view valuations, and particularly, uh, obviously, European valuations at, at this time? Well, adding uh, some statistics to the ones mentioned by Martin, the Eurozone cycle adjusted PE ratio relative to the US is one half of what it was 30 years ago. I mean, this is a, a staggering difference in valuation. The sector neutral PE ratio relative to the US is in the lower part of its range, even after the recent recovery. The price to book versus the US is at an all-time low. But there's a reason for that. US return on equity versus Europe is close to an all-time high, and US earnings have soared compared to the Eurozone. So European equities are cheap, but there is some reason. Uh, and therefore, the issue is, can they deliver on earnings? If they can, then the valuation is very attractive. Thank you. There you have it, James. And uh, definitely cheap, but uh, cheap for a reason or um, cheap enough to buy. What are your thoughts? I agree very much with the perspectives that, that, that Martin and, and Michelle have given in terms of uh, this um, this discount relative um, to the U.S., which is there, but it's 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 highly explainable in terms of um, 
in terms of the sector composition and in terms of the return on, on equity differential between the US and Europe. Uh, and that is the big question. Can Europe you know, deliver some growth over the next decade? I think an additional comparison is, is quite interesting. Um, uh, one between European stocks and, and corporate bonds um, at the moment. So 80% of European companies have dividend yields above the average corporate bond yield. And that's a significant valuation support. And the reason that I think it's particularly interesting is that the biggest buyers of European equities over the past decade have been multi-asset funds, which have the capacity to directly reallocate in light of that equity credit valuation gap going forward. So I'm pretty positive on, on, on the valuation picture in Europe at the moment. Thank you. Um, Martin, one of the reasons why uh, investors tend to be quite optimistic about, about the US and to say valuations don't matter anymore in the new paradigm is because of the uh, quantum of very exciting uh, US uh, tech companies. We know that we're entering um, uh, a world of very major structural change to how we live, work and, and consume. Can one access the winners from those changes in Europe? Is that, is that possible? The stereotype is Europe's full of the, the clunky old, old companies that are going to lose out. But when you're, when you're uh, scanning the market, can you find winners out there? I think you can. I think it's important to recognize that the market structure in Europe has changed quite a lot over the last five, certainly the last uh, 10 years when it comes to sector uh, composition. And you're absolutely right that the S&P 5 versus the S&P 495 accounts for the vast, vast majority of the overall uh, re-rating. Uh, but Europe uh, paradoxically finds itself in a fairly good place, we think, um, in some ways uh, helped by social security and proximity. Um, and and, and uh, to the question of technology, which sort of being the key beneficiary during and post-pandemic, uh, allowing people to continue to productively uh, work from home. Um, we should be aware that I think the tech sector in Europe has grown to uh, slightly over 10% of the index. So really, really a large increase uh, in terms of uh, some of these uh, long-term winners when it comes to uh, life um, after the pandemic. And clearly, um, we also have um, some very interesting movements when it comes to uh, driving uh, the reduction in carbon. We have the new Green Deal. Um, you know, something that we're looking in in our fund is obviously the renewable space, which is obviously very well represented. And, you know, whether it's biofuels or winds or even utilities, uh, battery adoption, um, and life sciences as well. Obviously, this is a very topical um, a topic in terms of uh, uh, not only the treatment uh, for coronas, but the golden age of biopharma. And Europe really has uh, some really good representation when it comes to biotech in the life sciences space. Thank you. James, as a global equity manager, it must have been tempting uh, in recent years just to buy those S&P 5, the, the giant tech companies, and, and go and play golf or something because they've just kept going up. But... Um, Presuming you didn't do that, and you have more than five stocks in your portfolio, and um, how do you how do you think about Europe and and the changes that are 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 coming uh, to our to our lives uh, forever? 
Yeah, that's right, David. And my golf is still terrible, so that that proves that I, I definitely haven't done um, just that. But my, um, I, I think I think Europe has got a big role to play in investing in these in these big changes that you're that you're talking about. So my investment approach is actually to invest in companies around the world that are on the right side of disruptive innovation and to avoid those on the wrong side. And that's what I do with the Global Equity Fund at Line Trust. Now. And not surprisingly, this means investing in innovative disruptors at the vanguard industry by industry. Um, and those disruptors are more prevalent in the US and in Asia than in Europe as things stand today. Um, but things are changing. However, what I would stress is that investing in these big changes is, is more than that. It's more than just the disruptors and the disrupted. It's also about identifying companies who are embracers of these changes. So they're not necessarily the out and out innovators, but they have responded to the call and the following in the slipstream of the disruptors. Now, what I would say about Europe is that it is not a bad place at all to find these kinds of businesses. And actually, they can be very interesting for investors for two reasons. First, they may actually have some useful legacy assets that the disruptors don't have that might give them an unlikely advantage against whatever is coming out of Silicon Valley. And second, they tend to have much more attractive valuations than whatever is coming out of Silicon Valley. So do not write Europe off when it comes to these disruptive, powerful changes. Thank you. Um, Michel, as an, as an asset allocator, um, is this concept of the disruptors and the disrupted something that is, is part of your, your thinking? And if so, how does your fit, fit into that theme? Well, the concept definitely uh, features, but uh, I think I'm going to take a slightly different opinion. I'm sure both Martin and James can pick some very attractive stocks. But if I have to pick markets, then I have to look at how markets behave. And the problem in Europe is sector tilts. For Europe to outperform the US, you need to believe that banks are going to beat technology because there's a very strict correlation historically. Now, there has been a transitory rotation around the normalizing PMIs, but if you believe that growth is going to continue to outperform value um, because bond yields stay constrained, then Europe is likely to have difficulty finding these sufficient number of these new ideas that people want to invest in Europe over investing in the US. What we have seen in the recent recovery in the European market is that it has pushed cyclicals versus defensives very high, um, which is at odds with the US bond yield, which normally tethers that ratio. So in fact, it's not the new technology post-COVID which is driving European equities, it's more like capital goods exports and luxury sectors, more traditional parts of the European market. Thank you. And Michelle, if we, if we uh, take that point um, a, a little bit further, if, if we do um, live in a world of uh, bond yields being lower, not just for longer, but forever, um, are there parts of equity markets generally and of equity markets in particular that one should, that one should avoid? Thank you, uh, David. I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves with uh, European equities have been the dividend cancellations that we have seen, uh, to be fair, a lot less in Europe than in the UK, but fairly high 
in places like France, Sweden and the Netherlands, and in industrials, financials and discretionary uh, sectors. Um, so I'm not sure how the second chapter of this saga will turn out, but I think in your stock picking, it is very important to make sure that you avoid some of these companies that may still have some problem with their dividends. Um, the Eurozone exporters are soaring way ahead of the currency movement. The euro is at the highest level since 2018, which means at some point the relative performance of exporters is likely to be hurt. So I would be a little bit cautious on those exporters. And also those who export transport equipment and machinery are very dependent on the Chinese market. And there's a political risk between the US and China, and they that may actually hamper them to a certain extent, whereas consumer goods may have an easier expansion there because they're less strategic. And uh, the thing is, uh, banks are very cheap, and they're seeing huge loan demand, and they're tightening the lending standards. So in a way, those are perhaps slightly safer uh, sectors. Thank you. Um, Martin, the, um, the euro has indeed, as, as Michelle mentioned, uh, got, got very much stronger. To, to what extent does that, um, does that impact uh, the great um, manufacturing businesses that make them less attractive to you as an investor? And I mean, what can you do about currency movement, really? The euro does have an impact uh, clearly on profitability, both, you know, on, on an economic basis, but also on a translated basis. But, you know, from my, from my experience, uh, I don't think one should make decisions solely on, on FX. And it's not just the euro. We can look at sort of the switch frame, the Swiss krona. Uh, I guess sterling uh, stands out as being one of the weaker currencies here. But clearly the weaker dollar is, signaling quite a lot. And one of those signals is in the that the economic recovery is, 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 is taking a hold. So volume growth, uh, certainly in the near term, post-pandemic, uh, we're seeing a very, very strong V-shape. And that is driving also um, a stronger euro and some of those uh, peripheral European currencies. So it, it's tempting to turn slightly more negative on it, but I think the anecdotal evidence has been to understand that that is actually powering an economic uh, revival in some ways. The, uh, the main issues with uh, a stronger euro, though, is obviously it may slow down some of the uh, domestic side of the eurozone, and that comes back to the banks again. But you know, we should remember that you know, banks only account for about 5% of the European index, you know, which is well down from uh, the mid-teens a couple of years ago. So it shouldn't necessarily impact uh, your view on the European market uh, as a whole. Thank you. James, um, as, a, as a global equity manager, I suppose you have to ask, well, you, you almost certainly have um, stocks uh, that are denominated in, in different uh, currencies and trade in, in different currencies. The, has the strength of the euro prompted, uh, prompted any sleepless nights in the Dabby household? Uh, no, no, it hasn't, David, not, not at all. And, and I... I, I, I invest with a, with a five to 10 year um, horizon in the companies that I invest in. And I, I take the basic assumption um, that, you know, my expected returns on, on FX are zero, um, you know, over that period. So I, I, I don't take these, um, these factors in, 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 into account. Um, 
I, I would say, I, 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 again, I, I would agree with, with what Martin and Michelle have said, that, that there are challenging sectors in Europe today. Um, financials and banks in particular um, are one. Um, but then at the same time, precisely because those challenges are there and the valuations are very low, they do offer opportunities. Um, and you know, one can appreciate the merit of, of going for those opportunities. Um, I would say one interesting feature of the past cycle was that we eventually saw a decent pickup in M&A in the US, but not in Europe, really. Now, this could change in the new cycle that we're in, and we may actually start to see some of that value in Europe start to get unlocked in these difficult sectors um, from a restructuring M&A um, perspective. So again, I, I think that there's maybe a lot of pessimism about, about Europe out there in a global context. Um, and I think that um, I think that it's a bit overdone. I think you know I think watch Europe um, over, over the next decade. Thank you, James, um, and thank you to Michelle Pereira uh, from Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, to James Howie, a Global Equity Manager at Line Trust, and to Martin Scamberg, a European Equity Manager at Schroders, for appearing on our podcast today and sharing their thoughts. This podcast was sponsored by Schroders, and please tune in next time for the next edition. Thank you. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.